Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now thetakeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and while we're on a bit of a summer vacation, occasionally we're going to come on and do some now showing. We're going to be back to the lens proper in September with our next miniseries about the films of Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers. But until then, we're happy to present the Golden Anniversaries Film Festival Talks with some key speakers talking about some of the great films of 1972. And you can go to cinemastlouis.org to see information about upcoming events, including upcoming Golden Anniversary Talks you can see in person or online. So I've seen it twice. I saw it at the screening we went to, and then I saw it at the IMAX in Chesterfield, the LIMAX, to be honest, right? Um, I have a friend who's in San Francisco right now. Shout out Julian, I know he listens. And he went to what is advertised as the second largest IMAX screen in the country. Something mm-hmm. like 96 feet wide and saw nope for the second time there. It it does make a difference. Um, there's only portions, right? They're kind of doing the Christopher Nolan thing where there's like segments yeah. of it that are full IMAX. Yes. And I think it's, you know, Nolan uses it to great effect. And he's done, I remember when we all first got like the DVD of The Dark Knight. We were like, why is the aspect ratio changing? You <laughs> remember all that crap. But this is sort of subtextual, too, when it opens up, um, because this whole film is about spectacle and the limits of vision, the limits of the frame and how you can manipulate image or at least maybe how image manipulates you. But we shouldn't get like really grand scale. Maybe we should get into some details, but then we're going to drop a spoiler flag. And then we we can go full spoilers and talk about the one thing no one can figure out and what we think it is. <laughs> and um, but first, like you published your review on last week, and you had a pretty positive take of it. Mm-hmm. Has it grown or not in your estimation as you think about it? Have you thought about it at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true of all. Peel's films. Um, but I feel like this is going to be in the same place as us. They give me six months or 12 months and I might even raise it like a half a letter grade or something. Yeah. I gave it a solid B because I do think it, it's not a perfect film, but I kind of did the same thing with us and I, us, I gave us a solid B, I think, and it's grown in my estimation. It's a fun film to talk and think about, which I think is always a great sign of like, you know, cinematic longevity when you come out of it, excited to talk to other people about it, not just in the sort of superficial oh here's all the easter eggs i spotted kind of way but in mm. term, but in but in the what the heck is this doing and why and what's going on um i think that that is always a good sign so whatever my criticisms of it um however light they are i do think that like it has been a fun film to think about and to see i love seeing i've been following like the 
general critical reaction pretty closely. Um, a, lot of, a lot of lovely of YouTubers reactions. No, I don't. I don't do the YouTubers. <laughs> we won't um, say his name. Don't say his name. Um, let's not even talk about that. Okay. But um, but yeah, like the, I've. It's been a lot of people I like to read have been writing very intelligently and incisively about it in the last you know few days. So I think that's that's always a great sign when a film brings that to the table, particularly like a mainstream film. Like this is a mainstream piece of mainstream pop entertainment and it's really gotten people to write about it the way they would normally write about memoria or whatever you know so that's kind of right and that's that's one of the things that thrills me the most in cinema is when a big budget project is able to unfold delicately like something like memoria or you know any other art house fair this film is and packed I, I just, with i just said memoria randomly problems. I just said Memoria randomly, but it occurs to me it's actually a pretty good comparison. Double, it's a good double bill. <laughs> Sight and sound, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, when we watched it, I was enraptured, enamored, confused. <laughs> we'll get into it. What I was really confused about is not necessarily any plot elements. It's pretty straightforward with plot but there are symbols throughout there's a subtext throughout that is so rich and so meaty and and often is what's the word i want is often holding two very different ideas at the same time together and that is so thrilling to me and that uh you were talking about your reaction to us i had the same reaction to us and like i can't parse through this us is interesting because spoiler alert it has a a twist to it that creates a sort of tethered double in another vision of what the film is with that knowledge mm -hmm. and and it really enriches it no nope, but even even apart from that even apart from that i think us works like even that's the remarkable thing about i think uh -huh. the slightly surreal strongly allegorical story that it's telling that like the 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 final twist does obviously enrich it and makes you want to revisit it again but i think it it works this feels good at making things feel strange and i know that seems like a very simplistic thing to say but it's hard it's the it's hard to get yeah it's hard to get weird right right um, and they're different because it often of comes across as like either cloying or very try hard and with him, he's able to pick up these um, cultural signposts and just tweak them. But it's but, really the the uncanny. So you're putting like the flailing arm inflatable tube man in like a in rows in a Western Valley, right? So it's almost like all, landing lights for a. I, I like thought of like landing lights, lights for an right. So it, so, so the the gulch itself becomes a runway. Right. It's the organization of all of these very familiar signposts that is so unique to him. The way he's able to eat out this kind of unparalleled strangeness from them. I'm not the biggest fan of Get Out. I think it's kind of overrated and people can come at me for that. I think a lot of it tends towards like a one of those like a very good version of one of those parody movies from SNL. But it's it's mind, appropriately so, I guess, is so sharp. 
Um, but I really felt like Us was such a step forward in his filmmaking and in really creating that tension between the, the canny and the uncanny and the organization. Well, I think that post. I think that Get Out, to me, this thing that still impresses me is that this the screenplay and he he won the Oscar famously. And that I revisited, I think, for the third time at, right after he won the Oscar and was like, yep. This absolutely deserved to win because this is an ironclad script. It feels like something he spent 10 years polishing. But there's a messiness, I think, that in... So the only, one of my criticisms of us in, in Nope, I guess it's a criticism, but it's also like a positive in some way, is that it's a, they're much messier films with a lot going on, not plot-wise. I, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, and I kind of cut you off, which is that Nope actually has a really simple plot. Mm -hmm. And it. I think one part that sort of sets it sets it apart from the other two is how much the final act in particular stops feeling like a survive this situation scenario which which get out in us definitely were right up to their very ends we need to get out of this situation <laughs> pun intended we need to survive <laughs> this situation whereas in the third act nope kind of does this transformation into a more I want to use the word positive because positive it's like a team good. mission movie, a more assertive, more proactive story. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think the parallel to Jaws is right. Not because this is a monster, not because it's doing some of the same, doing anything similar stylistically or, or scare wise, but because of that structural twist where the, the third act becomes, we are not going to sit still and wait for X to happen. We're going to go out and make something happen for ourselves, which is a nice note to end on. I noted in particular, like, it's nice to see that from Peel because his previous two films were definitely about the black experience to some degree, but they weren't definitely get out some, to some lesser degree us, but they didn't show, weren't exactly huge showcases for like black joy and black excellence. Sure. And no, I understand um, what you mean. Yeah. And I feel like the third act of Nope in particular gets that right. Like the solidarity of the siblings the things that are happening, the way that they're getting, there's some wonderful payoffs where skills that we've heard about tangentially start cropping up in you know, like characters who have abilities and skills that we've only heard about loosely start and coming the, up in that final act, final act. A reclamation of the medium they're using to right. complete their task. The word I was looking for earlier and I couldn't quite put my finger on is Fortean after Charles uh -huh. Fort. Charles Fort, the famous paranormal investigator and writer. Um, there's just this, there's this feeling of weird with a capital W that that has a Fortean quality to it. And for example, rains of man-made objects from the sky, which mm -hmm. play a criti critical role in the fate of OJ and Emerald's father. Like that's a classic example of a Fortean phenomenon, which different people might put different interpretations about why that occurred. But Ford was always more interested in the who, what, where, when. He was interested in it almost from a journalistic standpoint of he yeah. wanted to document the existence of weird things that happened that seemed inexplicable, not because he was necessarily interested in explaining them, but because he was interested in them as a phenomenon that tends to be forgotten. And that, that I, to, me, that, like, to me, that's a mission statement from Peel, because I, I can't believe he's not familiar with that. He's in, he was a heavily... He, by proxy through John Keel became a heavy part of the Mothman sightings or incidents. So like, I feel like Peel is aware of that and specifically having strange objects coming out of the sky raining down 
feels like almost like a mission statement in that first being like this is the this is the kind of weird capital w that we're in for yeah it's sort of the horror version of the reign of frogs and magnolia <laughs> magnolia's entire thesis which is you know these things really do happen sometimes shoes stand up for no reason whatsoever hey, hey wait, wait we'll get to the shoe we'll get to the shoe the thing i love about this and it people tend to talk about these three films and the latter two, especially in, in not understanding the character's motivation. The one thing I love about these films is that the, the motivation doesn't need to be explicitly spelled out. I completely understand why they would need to do this, not only for financial reasons, it's they've inherited this historic part of the Hollywood Dream Factory, which is Black-owned, and it's falling apart. It's crumbling apart. And not only is it financial, it's, it's their family story. And having recently lost their father, of, of course they're going to do anything they can to continue his legacy and also survive. <laughs> how, how are people well, watching films and not picking up on them? Yeah, I mean, I feel like everyone it's it pretty clearly why she wants to do it and that the thing is like the personalities the yin and yang personalities of of uh, oj and emerald are so beautifully drawn both by the screenplay and by the performances mm -hmm. and you get like the sense of how their immediate responses to seeing this object in the sky that they can't quite pin down are diff slightly different oj is maybe a little more spooked by it since he was the one who actually saw had the first sighting of it out on the out on the ranch sure. but emerald sort of eyes light up and she starts immediately her brain starts going and she's like how could we make something out of this and what's interesting is that a different kind of film would turn that fundamental different reactions into the core dramatic intra-sibling conflict of the film and instead oj is wary oj is more sensible or is more pragmatic but he still goes along. He still goes to, to, with Emerald to Fry's and gets the equipment and consents to have it all installed. So, she also instantly believes him. Right. She does not doubt that this man would lie to him, would lie to her uh, on any uh, level. And so which is whenever why, which is says, why OJ, yeah, make, being yeah. the one who sees it is important. And again, this, the, this, this, the brilliance of the script is that if Emerald had been the one to see it, if there would have been 20 minutes of dithering as her sort of exuberant personality oversells it and OJ doubts it. But Peel makes the more introverted, hard-nosed guy the first one to see it, which instantly negates that the need for that kind of like plot dithering and sets us right into motion of cracking the, the scheme of what they're going to take a picture or a video of this thing. And this, for me, is one reason why his filmmaking is so special. And we don't see it particularly in Hollywood filmmaking. Turning away from easy explanation. Turning away from exposition. Exposition that tells the audience. It, to me, this is his most elegant film yet. Yeah. I don't see a messiness to it at all. I think there's a... a Fairness in the filmmaking, in the language of Nope, there's a spareness that is inherited from its Western setting and 
culturally to me it's so beautiful to see a film exclusively about filmmaking but about filmmaking where black people and those who are othered are centralized in the filmmaking narrative and for it to be a joyous celebration of filmmaking that is hyper aware of the dangers of the moving image i think right. at this point for me it's my favorite film of the year i think it's kind of a masterpiece i find it to be emotionally enriching i find it to be it, i love calling of the influences and calling of the ideas from disparate places seemingly disparate places to make a thesis about screens and how we interact with screens and the moving image that i find incredibly thrilling at pretty much every given turn i have two very minor there are like two small beats in this that i'm like eh. Otherwise, I actually think it's uh, probably his best film, but I'm also like Us is kind of no notes from me. And Us took me a long, a much longer time to get to no notes, whereas this one took me about a day. And the feeling that I got from racking my brain of trying to connect Gordy's home to what's in the sky to a praying mantis on a camera, to a shoe standing on end, has been uh, one of the more thrilling experiences in cinema in the past couple of years for me. And I think we should probably get into very specific details. I'm a full spoiler that, now, right? Yeah, let's go into the spoiler. You probably want to skip this if you haven't seen it because it's not that anything that happens in it is so surprising. It's that the, the way it unfolds to me is so predicated on what you expect from something like this. All right, let's throw the flag down. We go in spoily. No, no, no. Mm -mm. Where do we want to go first? Where do we, what do we want to do first? The well, shoot. Let's talk about the <laughs> shoot. We're going to talk about the shoot. So during the flashback to the attack, we see, so the flashback actually happens twice. It is the cold open to the film. The, like, the preamble to the preamble, right? You get a slice of it. You don't get much of it. Yeah, so Gordy. what you see is a very low on the ground camera is low to the ground and we are watching this chimpanzee bloodied just kind of wander about a set and we do see a shoe standing on end with a like a single drop of blood on it uh next to a body that appears to be pretty beaten up and then we have the scene with keith david where everything rittens from the sky and then later on we get the full flashback and balloons are raising up to the ceiling, going to the to the heat lights. And as they do, they pop and it seems to set off the chimpanzee. And as it turns out, the perspective that we've 
already seen and didn't have the information. We now have the information that it's actually Stephen Young's character. Um, his nickname is Jupe. And the theme park he owns is called Jupiter's Claim. It's a Western theme park. We are situated in his experience as he hides under a table and the chimpanzee approaches him and gives him a fist bump. A lot of this film is also about exploitation and it, it gets there specifically through animal exploitation yeah. in filmmaking. I have um, thoughts on that as the, as the resident vegetarian. I yeah, I bet. But so we still see that shoe there and we see within his shrine to the whole uh, Gordy's home fiasco, Stephen Yun has that shoe. And not only does he have that shoe, it's within a shrine that he's bragging about selling, uh, you know, the experience of to people. People are contacting him because they've heard about it on the Internet and they want to see this secret space where he's got this shrine to this very traumatic event. So traumatic. He can't actually tell the story. He tells the story yeah. by telling the SNL skit version of it. Chris Kattan, man. Which I think is a great, it's not only a great like thematic beat, but it's just, there's something very well observed about that. The idea of like, it's kind of excruciating when somebody tries to explain a comedy sketch to you. It's so like, bad, right? It's like it's me trying to explain the scene, right? It's never a satisfying experience. And it somehow works with the way that Jupus has this sort of nervous, he's amused by it, but he's also clearly like uncomfortable in some way talking about it. It just, it jibes with that whole thing. Yeah. There, so a, what, what of the shoe? What are we to make of the shoe? The shoe means nothing and everything, right? Oh like, the, it, what, what do you want the shoe to mean? I think there are a lot of things in this film that have corollaries to some sort of theory or logic, right? But the shoe is so representative of our urge to interpret the image. We must discern meaning from the image. Me leaving this theater, it, uh, uh, he had already indicted me throughout this film. And I wanted everything to make sense. I wanted everything to coalesce together. And on Except the, the mystery, theory, as the Coens would say. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, it, it, what does that shoe mean? Well, the shoe means nothing. <laughs> and the shoe means everything. Well, I mean, the fact that it's in a, you know, display case positioned exactly as it was off presumably found or photographed on the set after the disaster with Gordy. I mean, like there's an element of fetishism, right? We could yeah. part, part of, and I think maybe there's like some, some commentary on fandom in general, like Absolutely. the way that fandom latches onto details that may, may not have the meaning that the create any meaning that the creators intended. It may be an incidental detail put in for stylistic reasons, or it may be something completely random. And then there's a tendency to, to latch onto those details and to fetishize them. And I, I've, I've mentioned it a, meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I've mentioned it a thousand times, you know, because it, but it is kind of my Rosetta stone for understanding films about mystery and ambiguity. I, I always go back to what, Bill Cooper said in Twin Peaks, which is that he had this rock solid belief that if you can crack the code, you can solve the crime, that all puzzles can be unlocked if you're just diligent. And of course, what Twin Peaks did was it spent two seasons completely dismantling that argument. 
right. there are some, that there is madness and chaos <laughs> in the universe that cannot be understood. So yeah, like the way that that object becomes fetishized and that like, I mean, that the actress's blood is still on it and Jupe has it in his, like the place he works every day. And it's an weird. actress that he appears to still have a, a, some sort of relationship with because she's eventually invited to his big debut show, which I, I feel, I feel so bad for that, for that, for that woman. Like what a life she's had. <laughs> she had this horrible, oh morbid thing happened to her. And then how did she die? <laughs> oh so God. the worst bit of it is when he takes you inside, when he yeah. takes you inside the machine and it is, I mean, the whole thing is sort of a metaphor for camera or creation and you can take it in any direction you want. It looks kind of vaginal. It looks like a flower. It also looks like a sea creature. This is the quote unquote UFO that you've all seen in the trailers is actually some sort of maybe life alien life form. Maybe it's not alien. That they kind of do. They kind of do the, tre the tremors thing. It's not important where it came from. It's just here. Right. Yeah. Who cares? But what's important is that in the center of it is this. <laughs> Wait. Okay. Let me get back to my point. I'm so excited about this fucking movie. We're going to talk about how its mouth is a screen. Uh, its mouth is a flickering. <laughs> and maybe that's a little like it, the the relationship between Moybridge, which is an important plot point, is that. The Haywoods' great, 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 great grandfather was the the jockey and the trainer of the horse in Edward Moy Bridges' film of well, it's, it was a series of still images that put together made one of the first moving pictures. That is not uh, real; <laughs> that is a, a fabrication of Jordan Peele's. But I think it gets to his point about reclamation of of your history. Well, what is true is that the the film that they show is one of Maybridge's sequences. Oh, it wasn't sure. necessarily the first, but it was it was one of his famous sequences. But the the really salient point that I don't think they mention in the film, which is that we know the horse's name, but we don't know the black guy name of the black guy who wrote it. Like how how exactly. on the nose is that? I mean, there's a lot of discussion in this, not discussion of it, but it's around the fringes of it. Is like the erasure of the black experience throughout history. It's what how you choose to edit your images right is how you choose to tell the story um but the thing we were first talking about was the credits unfold as we turn out as it turns out to be inside of the animal but instead of its kind of pillowy like flashing inside screen that it has as it might be a digestive system we see the moybridge short and then we go into the film proper but when the thing unfolds in the end it is like how would you describe it it's like a silky fabric that keeps eating itself it flickers it appears to like eat itself and then digest itself outward to me it's like it was like watching like a protein enzyme unfold on like a colossal scale um, right but then but it's like he has talked about neon genesis evangeline being an influence visually oh on the design oh um, and you probably can talk more about that than i can but i know that that's it didn't that creature design didn't come sort of ex nihilo it's it, it has some influences but it is very original it is one of the most original alien designs i've seen in a long time yeah and i know that it has um some roots in like actual 
seed biology right now. Yeah, seed so, biology too. So just jumping in with my bio background for those who don't know, I have a biology degree. Um, a scientist. There's this. There's a you know the class of creatures that includes jellyfish, the cnidarians, and also some lower forms, hydrozoans, and so forth. Like the distinguishing feature of early life forms, of early animal life forms, is the emergence of an orifice, right? And that's an important part of the, the, the plot of this film. But what distinguishes those more ancestral life forms from later life forms is that the gut, the digestive system, eventually was turned into two. And now you have a, a, a mouth, for lack of a better term, a mouth and an anus. It became a vector. What In those earlier life forms, the mouth and the anus are the same thing. One hole sucks up and one hole spits out. <laughs> and again, I can't believe that's an accident. Andrew, <laughs> uh, you just, you just, that's this film, because that thing is a metaphor for film, for cinema. It is the thing that consumes, but also gives. It is. All right. It sprays out blood. <laughs> oh my God. I, I hadn't seen that shot. I guess it is in the trailer of the blood coming down on the front steps. Yeah. I hadn't seen that. My jaw was on the floor. I was like, I can't believe he's raining blood on this house right now. And not in a like Evil Dead remake where it's raining pools of blood. It is like icky That's enough. literally the blood of the children that we just saw in the early <laughs> And because <laughs> have, yeah, you have that association with it. It is like, oh my God, that is fucking devastating but that's also in the middle of where you're seeing god so there's a shot where he daniel kalua that when the alien comes electronics electricity stops it's also kind of about you know digital versus analog and the thing that really saves the whole gambit uh, until hubris comes along is that a a non-electronic camera is used to cap yeah. capture the image that they're trying to make using bank film. off of using film. film. What is film? Jeez. Right. <laughs> so, and there's a meta there too, right? Because Nope is Peel's first non-digital film. Yeah. And it, it, there's so many threads and that it is a film expressly about Hollywood history and about, you know, we're pairing this with Buck and the Preacher, the golden anniversary talk. That was Sidney uh, Poitier's directorial debut. And that is a, a reclamationist Western uh, that centers on two yeah. black protagonists in the West. When I saw that poster in the film, I wanted to do the Leo pointing thing. It was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I see you, Peel. I know what you're doing. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's there's a racial there's a racial element to it, but there's also just a like labor element to it, right. and that that of course takes us back to us. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you know. The people, I don't think it's an accident, for example, that, you know, OJ's wearing a crew hoodie from the That's Scorpion King. Like, in a sense, this, is, this isn't just a tribute to the forgotten Black contributions. It's a tribute to everybody who's below the line. It's a tribute mm -hmm. to all the working stiffs, down to including horse trainers, who don't necessarily get the share. I mean, you know, that's... It's in, which is which is itself kind of fascinating because Peel is sort of one of our emergent American, not emergent anymore. I say he's arrived Amer American auteurs, but of course this film is partly like a breakdown of auteur theory. It's about the collaborationist aspects of filmmaking. Going back to the 
digital and the analog. I love this shot or scene where they've just gotten fired off that commercial job because the horse had a bad reaction to seeing something, which is key to the plot. It reminds a, via, a digital Reader. VFX ball. Yes, a digital VFX ball frightens him, and which is a, a mirror. Mm -hmm. So it was a screen itself. They get fired because it has a bad reaction to it. But then there's a scene after where you see a, a green screen horse made of like iron being walked in. So they're just going to CGI it in. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a, a, a great uh, metaphor for what's happening on a larger scale within the film and in the industry. Yeah. There's a Rossellini film called the, the machine that eats bad mm. people. And it's about a magical camera. Uh, that destroys fascists, if you want to take it at a kind of metaphorical level. level. And that's what I kept thinking about is like, this is the machine that just kills people <laughs> as film, as a metaphor, the consumer behind it, but then the, the, also the art form and how do you marry these two things? That's always the question people are always talking about with this. When the film finally takes a shape of kind of the, uh, fist pumping, rallying around a mission and all of the kind of pieces that these people have set up begin to play out and begin their, their plan is kind of going according to plan. I lose the thread of everything else in it. And I think that's with a purpose. It sort of becomes the thing that it's also critical about. And to yeah. me, that it can carry both of those things and, and have everything be true is very thrilling to me. The tension between that is, is unparalleled. Yeah, and I've seen a couple, some of the negative reactions to the film I've seen have sort of harped on that aspect, that, that there's an element of inconsistency or even hypocrisy on Peel's part. But I think, like, if you... Ambiguity is okay. It's okay for a film to think of two ideas at the same time, to have two things in competition and tension on screen for us to witness and have allow us to sort out our feelings about it. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. One of the things I do like about the film a lot is that unlike, we've talked a lot about metaphors here. We said metaphor about a hundred times, I feel like over yeah. 30 minutes. But one of the reasons I think it's a strong film and maybe stands up a little stronger as a story than compared to us is that you can ignore the metaphors completely and it it works as a crackerjack thriller particularly in that last that act i think it, it like it sweeps you along like i i wasn't necessarily intellectualizing any of this when i was watching it for the first time i was just enjoying it for what it was for this sort of uh, uh, a filmmaker with a proven track record getting to work on a much larger pop art scale than he ever had before and it works on that level whereas us i feel like the allegory is so quasi Strong surreal. And central. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's almost quasi surreal. It's completely uh -huh. implausible, and if you just have to be okay with that, with the, right. the whole thing about the tethered, doesn't even really make sense. But you just have to say yes. I, I agree to I agree to this unrealistic scenario. I will because, suspend my disbelief. Yes, yeah. and not that giant aliens needs any less suspension of disbelief, but there isn't that whiff of like overt allegory to the scenario. No, like we all of us recognize the genre essentialism of there's a UFO in the sky. What's going on? Is it really like, what should we do? Like that scenario at the most distilled down level is recognizable. Whereas I don't think you could, other than 
where people are trying to kill us and we're trying to get away. I'm not sure how you could distill down us. The, whole, the, the complexity of the scenario is sort of the point of us. <laughs> yeah, uh, you could describe Nope in 30 seconds or less, right? right? Even though I took quite a bit longer to do it. Us, <laughs> us is like a podcast episode. But so Nope, I, I think you're right. And that's why I, I was vibing with it so hard and just luxuriating in it. And it is a film that another criticism people have had is that it's, it seems stretched to a point. I'm like, y'all went and saw that Quentin Tarantino three hour Hollywood thing and enjoyed watching Rick Dalton talk for 10 minutes. Like you can't watch these people talk and be funnier anyway. No, I mean, if, if I have a criticism, it's that I feel like as with us, there's a lot of ideas stuffed in here and some of them sort of get short trift. I could watch a three hour cut of this film. I feel like. I think I could too, but then I think it isn't, it doesn't become the very neat thing that it's also about, right? I think it's elegance to me is in its construction, but the elegance isn't necessarily in its ideas. And that is thrilling. Everything we're talking about, I, I've been thinking about since, when did we see it? What, seven did. days ago. Yeah, seven we days ago, did, right? Yeah. I've been thinking about it constantly um, and talking to some people about it and, and reading things about it. Richard Brody wrote a review, a beautiful review, called it one of the best films about filmmaking ever. And Richard Brody is someone who has, I think he had Us and Get Out at, as his number one films of their respective years. So mm -hmm. I was anticipating his writing and because I was also so thrilled at the things he was thrilled at in Us that I was sort of, he's like, He's going to, yeah, he's going to really be able to spell out the things I cannot. And he did not disappoint. There is one. Alyssa Wilkinson has a really great piece of Vox, too. That's been my favorite piece of writing. I've oh, it's it, so far. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And it's sort of a misnomer in that it says it's, you know, Jordan Peele's Nope Explained. It's a beautiful piece of film criticism. Yeah. Um, and she does sort of break down all the. The all Vox pieces have to be saying explained. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess they do. Film criticism explained. I want to talk about just this one cut in it. Mm. The whole film is about your limitations in vision. And this is one of the very, my very favorite preoccupations with horror filmmakers, especially, well, if you want to consider Brian De Palma, a horror filmmaker, thriller filmmaker. Some, some films, yeah. Yeah, Hitchcock and Argento are sort of three granddaddies of vision and an extremis, we'll call it. And this film is also about the limits of the frame, the limits of your eyesight, right? And being able to get at truth, whether or not you can believe what's in front of your eyes or see beyond the frame. Uh, there's one sequence where all the electricity has gone out of the house because anytime it passes by, um, it sucks out the stops all the electricity, even in your cell phone. I love that bit from Brandon Perea in the fries. He's like, that doesn't cell phones don't work like that. <laughs> He's my new crush. Anyway, OJ is rescuing a horse he sold to Stephen Young after Stephen Young is devoured and shown in the guts of this thing, which looked like a jump house that a jumping house that has like collapsed 
and murdered children. It had the translucency to that reminded me of a pitcher plant, like the interior of a, of a carnivorous plant. Oh, it's so <laughs> gross. And it's so upsetting because he sits you like on their faces as they're squeezed through this thing. Yeah. Anyway, he's he's rescued Lucky. He escaped the animal, alien, whatever. And he's sitting in his truck as it's raining down blood. And he looks at the house and the house just has this circle with layers. It's like the two layers of hell is raining down because this thing has opened its butthole up and is just shitting blood everywhere and keys and, and, and coins and the same yeah. stuff that's vault, all of the things it can't digest. Right. Which is kind of the way it, they end up killing it. Anyway, he's in his truck. He sees that <laughs> the thing moves away from the house. He sits back <clears throat> and he's waiting and then he leans forward. And this is so smart to keep it inside the truck, keep it inside the house, save for a choice movement down the house as you see the blood raining down. Because of course I wanted to see that, had to. But he just leans forward to look at the sky and then you get a point of view shot and he can't see anything. The thing's moved. You can tell it's moved by what's, he can't see anything because his vision's obstructed. What you then see is he moves back and then he goes to open the truck door. And what you, what I have been trained, my Hitchcock training tells me, okay, now I get his point of view. I get to see the thing that he's looking at. Instead, Jordan Peele puts his camera very low to the ground. And Worm, Dan Daniel, like a worm's eye view. Yeah. Uh huh. Worm's eye view, very low to the ground. To, and Kaluya opens the, the door very slowly and then pans up to see him looking and then seeing the rings of raining hellfire in the sky. And the mouth Quick. anus yawned out up in the sky. Yeah. Quick cut back inside, slam the door shut. And he says, nope. <laughs> and just the, it, it, the, the resistance of giving you what you want mixed with, I, I really can't show it to you that way because I'm trying to reveal something else, something more true to you is present throughout this film at virtually every turn. I did mentioned two things I didn't kind of vibe with. They're both related to the cinematographer, which is such a great character. I just think of man, this character, just hearing his voice come back on the big screen is great. And him speak singing one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater, I guess to the first thing that we're talking about, something that's sort of innocuous is turned on its head and made into something very nefarious, right? If anything, to me, that it spells out the metaphor a little bit too much, maybe. And then the other thing would be the uh, TMZ guy. Once he's hits the invisible wall, we'll call it, of electricity, and his uh, bike throws him <laughs> and he's on the ground and OJ goes to save him because that's the type of person he is. And the guy's like, did you get my camera? Did you get my camera? I'm like, all right, let him say it once twice for the stupid folks 
<laughs> yeah, the, I think the, if there's the one theme, like, if there's yeah. one theme, I feel like it either needed to be dropped or needed to be developed better. It's just the generic. There's a there's a we need to stop looking at things through our phones and just appreciate them in the moment kind of like scoldish element that winds its way subtextually through the film. I didn't really appreciate that just because I feel like it's, it, it feels so easy and cheap. You either need to develop it more in a more sophisticated way or you just need to not include it. And that TMZ guy felt like sort of the epitome of that. Yeah, the TMZ guy does point to that. I think it's more about the quest to capture, right? Yeah. But that's how they win, too. And that's what I'm talking about, having all these ideas that seem to conflict in having a holistic vision of the capability of film. Whether but it's interesting, good, but it's interesting where the film ends, right? Because we know on some level that the capturing of the image is victory. It, it could lead to, it presumably will lead to fame and fortune for, for the Hammonds. But Peel ends the movie on the fact of the photo she got it. That's all that matters. Emerald got it. And OJ is alive. So we get the things that matter to these characters. They achieved the singular thing they set out to do. And their sibling pair is still, is still intact. That's all that matters. And that's where the film can end. We don't need that freaking epilogue where we get to see them on, you know, talking about that's it on viewer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Well, the one thing that I do... I, I'd like about the well camera, and this is a crank camera that you activate with a, a coin. Mm -hmm. um, importantly so, I think, because it goes back to the way their father attacked, right? Yeah. And then a crank camera that uh, once you've fully cranked it, it will take one exposed image. But what she's essentially doing is remaking the Moybridge film mm -hmm. through still images and animating them as they come out Polaroid style to make the story of Nope about how they won. What? And what's interesting about that, if you know the history of the Moybridge sequences, is that part of the reason he created them, and he was just as much interested in anatomy and physiology as he was in photography. And one of the reasons he's created them, because one of the questions that scientists in the, in the 19th century had about animal locomotion was, are there moments when a horse, a horse is 100% off the ground when it's at full gallop? Right. And in order to find that moment, he had to proceed through a series of sequences. This one, nope, that's not it yet. This one, nope, that's not yet. Which again, sort of, it goes right back to the sequence that we get at the end with Emerald, which is that no, not quite, no, not quite, right. no, not quite. There it is, the Oprah full shot. Full flight, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Oprah shot. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's something interesting going on too. By I come back to biology about how the things that the monster cannot digest are metal and plastic. The two man man-made things. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and they get what makes the what makes the spectacle go away kills it. Another spectacle, a big kitschy giant cowboy balloon. I love it. A, a, a representation of a human that's winking. Right. I just but everything but spectacle, in it is so spectacle replaces spectacle, I guess is what I'm saying. Right, spectacle exactly. devours devours spectacle and is devoured in turn. I think ultimately it's about that. It's about, you know, resisting it, um, but the pull towards it and how this invention that we, you know, at least some of our life we have dedicated to realizing its capabilities. 
you know, there's great essays. Um, Krakauer wrote about this and uh, just warning about its ability to tell truth and its ability to lie. And here we have that's something that I think is getting towards truth by lying great big lies at us. Some, you know, I think it was uh, what Godard say film uh, is truth 24 frames per second. Godard Truffaut, one of those two. And then Brian De Palma said, mm, it lies 24 frames per second. But that's okay. I mean, I think what, again, I, I don't really agree with the criticisms about like the ambiguity or the hypocrisy being a, a bug. I think it's a feature. And I think part of what Peel's doing, and it is part of a larger tradition that you don't often see in pop cinema, it's, it's generally a feature of more cerebral cinema is that it's okay to feel ambivalent sometimes about mm -hmm. imagery. It's mm -hmm. okay to have to be of two minds, you know, and, and hey, now that I'm, now that I'm saying it out loud, it gets at like our, our distinction or artificial distinction between populist cinema and art cinema, mm -hmm. which like you feel bad about liking pop cinema when you know you should like art cinema, for the same reason that you feel bad about gawking at some spectacle that you know is harmful in some way. Like, it's okay. I feel like part of what Nope is doing is giving us permission to feel, it's not scolding us. It's no. giving us permission to feel ambivalent about it. To, to understand all of it, to take it all in, right? And expand our frame, they, if you will. Expand the to frame. capture more. As they do in IMAX. I told you it had purpose. Uh, the one thing I noticed this round, second round, I guess you would call it littered with Easter eggs. They're just details that sort of prop up his ideas. Within Stephen Yeun's shrine, there's a t-shirt for Cape Canaveral celebrating the Challenger launch in 1986. Every Gen Xer can tell you where they were. Exactly. And I love Kiki Palmer's outfits, Emerald's outfits. She's always wearing an animal. Hmm. I want to go back briefly. I and mean, we've gone on for way longer than we intended, but that's okay. Okay. This film, this film deserves it. I want yeah. to go back. You mentioned cuts and one of the more remarkable things about this film to me, just from a sort of looking at Peel's career is that he's using the same editor, Nicholas Mansour, Mansour that he's mm -hmm. used on both previous films. But I feel like one of my criticisms of us was that I felt like the editing was a bit dodgy at times like it, it was confusing and not in a deliberate way about time and where exactly we were i think this film has some absolutely god smacking cuts in it and you mentioned the one earlier the one that sticks out in my mind is we get this beautiful scene before sort of the big rodeo show set piece that ends up killing everybody where jupe is stephen young's character jupe is sort of going through his preparations before the show and we get the impression by the end of the film, we have enough backstory to realize he's been doing this like every week for six months. And that's where all the horses have been going to our horror. <laughs> so he's prep. He's like, I don't know what the word is. He's psyching himself up to give her to deliver. He's rehearsing. Story. He's been rehearsing. Right. But what we don't get is the rehearsal. It's this beautiful long shot of him staring sort of melancholically. There's something going on in his eyes. His wife is going around doing busy work. And then. She, she, she like gives him his hat or his neck. He gives him his hat, I think. Now he's truly the Western character. Mm -hmm. And then he says like the first couple words of the speech that we eventually see, but the cut mm -hmm. is so damn precise. 
um, right there to, to, again, to deny us that we're going to get it eventually, but not yet. It, it's blue balling us so beautifully right there. It happens again, and this is more diegetic maybe because OJ is knocked out <laughs> and then we see him when he wakes back up. There are several instances of this throughout the film where he does this very quick cut on something where you're, you're anticipating the movement within that particular scene, but then he suspends it and says, okay, I'm going to show you this next thing. I just, the title is so, it seemed so weird to me. Like, I got it. It was a good joke. It's like a good, when the trailers came out and everything, and the way, ugh, the marketing for this, that first trailer where it, it just comes from the sky and it says, from Jordan Peele, nope, right? But I started thinking about it, and not only how ingrained that reaction is or where that reaction comes from culturally and in particular black culture in reaction to media and you think about the way people use that term is when they see something that they're resistant to and their kind of gut reaction is nope i'm not dealing with it it is a turn away from action it is a a diversion to say i I will not, right? And so- Just don't look. Just, just don't, don't look. look, right. And here, the the way he's using that, and he does have people say it literally several different times, and each time it happens, it's better than the last. He's also doing it within the film too. He's doing this act of ob obfuscation where he's resisting traditional storytelling, even though he's doing a traditional story. And I love that particular tension too. The film, I think this- I mean, the Gordy, the Gordy subplot, the Gordy subplot, flash, flash, flashback, mm -hmm. feels like a structural, every time it pops in, it feels like a structural monkey wrench, pun intended, into right. this, the works of a more smoothly functioning sort of blockbuster. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have been critical of that too, and particularly it, where it does appear within the film. For me, I, I think it's incredibly thrilling that he suspends the narrative proper to take it to something that seems tangentially related. It is not tangentially related. It is completely, I mean, if anything, it's setting up just personal and cultural history of where these people are in this particular moment. It is an act of saying yes instead of no, to where I can reveal these things to you because I want you to understand what's important about what they're doing right now and the way this man has turned into, and he's not a villain. You would think he's going to become a villain, um, Stephen Young, mm -hmm. but he's very sympathetic because you actually see the trauma inflicted upon him from this, he's sort of a bystander in it, but he becomes an active participant through the fist, <laughs> the the uh, fist bump. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I just sounded first... 75 years old. I couldn't think of fist bump. <laughs> the fist bump with the chimpanzee, which is like an act of, of your, you know, complicit in my action here. And then he kind of carries that through to its logical extension while also being a, a yeah i mean survivor I think Jupe, of that trauma i think jupe's not a villain he's he makes some really bad judgment calls i think his desire to reignite 
his fame. I mean, there's an, again, there's something there too about a formerly famous person who has fallen out of fame, desperately, both both strip mining their legacy for profit, but also hungry to get back where they were. And this this alien creature may be the way that droops. And so his hunger for that out kind of outweighs his good sense and his sense of danger for himself, for his spectators, for his own family. And it gets, ends up getting everybody killed. But I don't think of him as a villain. He's sort of like the he's the he's the instructive tragedy that you're that we're pointing to. I mean, yeah. Part of what I like about that, especially that second longer journey through the Gordy's home set is that it's so long. It's a very long sequence and it's almost has like a horror movie agonizing quality to it because like the, some of the people on the set aren't dead yet. And Gordy keeps beating the living crap out of them. Oh, it's and, absolutely horrific. It is. Yeah. So and crazy. we're just sort of trapped there. And the genius of it is I think it's just long enough for us to forget about the A plot for to get about with now, where the hell were we with the UFO? Game? Yeah. And exactly. I got, I got yeah. sucked into the, which again is making its own point, right? I got so sucked into the horror of watching a CGI chimp, bloody CGI chimp, beat the crap out of people from Jupe's perspective, mostly. Let's be honest, that's another thing there. It's all Jupe himself can't close his eyes to this. And, uh, you know, people are hardly ever critical of, well, most folks are hardly ever critical of Quentin Tarantino's digressions. Uh, and I bring that up specifically because I think the one film spiritually most recent film this reminds me of is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and not just because of its surfaces and sort of surface level comparisons with characters who kind of pass their prime on the outside of Hollywood trying to get back in um I think within that Tarantino's also after the fantasy machine the thing that can lie and tell the truth to you and trying to negotiate between the two also structurally of course <laughs> there are yeah. chapters to this i feel like to tarantino and he is the master of sort of like lively digression and long extended sequences that don't necessarily seem to go anywhere initially but the other thing i mean that but that's if you you know if you've seen any sort of art cinema at all you know that that's not unusual like everybody who thinks that the gordy subplot was pointless i kind of want to sit them down and say Let's watch Lost Highway. Like let's let's watch a movie that has all kinds. Let's watch Twin Peaks: The Return. How many freaking seemingly pointless, dangling loose threads were there in that? Like yeah, sometimes digress. Sometimes digression. Those things okay. with these people, it <laughs> but, will okay. be very frustrating. I mean, there's a larger conversation going on I, uh, that I think Nope is fed into about cultural literacy and the way that, like, how viewers interact with popular entertainment now I and mean, that could be its own podcast but yeah like i and i also want to touch on before we invest any more time in this i do want to say that one thing i loved about this film is i do think it's peel's best looking film today yeah, and part great. of that may be that it's shot on film that he has he not to not to disparage his previous cinematographers at all who do, do some amazing work i've always really loved the, the funhouse lighting in us in particular i think it's particularly great that greasy blue black light in the fun house in the early sequences up. But um, Hoyt Van Hoytma, who is one of, uh, who's been Christopher Nolan's go-to yeah. since the Batman films. He's done, he made Ad Astra with James Gray, her with Spike Jones. He's, he's just a, he's, he's one of our great sort of living working cinematographers. 
I think he makes this him and Peel together and P, him sort of walking. He's talked about how he kind of had to bring Peel into the world of film of right. away from digital and that he kind of took to it like an excited kid and he loved it. And possibilities. the the uh, where they're centered, this right. valley, mountainous valley is and gorgeous. The, the night sequences are wonderful. Um, Clayton has talked a bit in interviews about how the imagery is like combined visual and infrared into this wonderful, like hmm. eerie day for night. But one of the things I loved about it is that it isn't, I, I had a criticism of us's photography is that I often felt like it was too murky, that there were parts that were, there, there was some lack of clarity in some scenes visually. I feel like I couldn't discern the action properly. And this film more than corrects that. Like part of, it almost becomes like a feature, right? Rather than a bug. That part of the the sort of thrilling terror of those early sightings of the UFO or creature, I guess I should say, is that Hoidman's and Peel's images are right on the edge of you being able to tell what exactly you're looking at. And there, there's that wonderful early sequence, like beautiful, quiet early sequence when OJ first spots the UFO, where he's looking. You can see Jupe's like Western show in the mm -hmm. distance and those bright baseball diamond like floodlights yeah. and in retrospect we know what's going on there right. now right but the way that like he just sits there and stares and stares and stares at it like what am i trying to make out what like? am i what am i looking at and this feels like like the photography of this film for good portions of it obviously not sort of the crystal clear daylight sequences but the night photography in the film feels like sort of the the visual embodiment of what am i looking at exactly because that's because that's the feeling of seeing something inexplicable just at the, I think it's almost like a horror movie vibe. I don't think this is really a horror film, but there is some horror movie vibe right there. When something is hovering at the edge of you being able to discern it as a visual object, or is this just a trick of the light? Or is this just a floater in my eyeball? What am I looking at there? There's some beautiful, those night sequences with UFOs sort of beautifully capture that thrilling sensation of not quite being able to tell what your eyes are showing you. Yeah. And, and again, comes back to just sort of the thesis of what film is able to do. The one thing I love about the night sequences, they're blue mm -hmm. because on film, night equals blue. It does yeah. not equal like rain, murky Marvel movie gray where you can't see anything and it's only just obscuring. It's saving the money on CGI. I know that's what's going on. I know that's why every penultimate action sequence in a Marvel film is raining at night we're not stupid but in this film, that's why john wick is, is always in like crazy colors because right. they, they can do that when they have real people <laughs> all right well i think we should probably leave it there i'm gonna keep thinking about no we could i feel like we could talk for another hour i think we probably this. could too maybe we'll do a commentary for it one day who knows who knows a watch we should do a lens watch with me or something oh my god we'll sell tickets <laughs> and our our five listeners are going to come i love all five of you but please stick around because we're going to be talking about a film that is explicitly called out the poster for buck and the preacher is in the haywood home right next to the window frame oh my god that scene where they it's the western door shot except it's through their window onto their ranch and the door and the camera goes through the window and a tear went down my cheek. <laughs> anyway, it's Gerald Early talking about Buck and the Preacher. That's 1972, our next golden anniversary film. It is a, a Black Western, another Black Western, Sidney Poitier's debut film. 
Andrew and I might stop by again during our little vacation. I don't know. We'll look at the calendar and see if anything deserves. What did we do? It's been like an hour. Shit. Oh, my God. We'll see if anything else deserves an hour. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I am the Reverend Willis Oaks Rutherford of the high and low order of the Holiness Persuasion Church. Will you get him out of my house? I got my reputation to think of. <laughs> Come back. Good evening. My name's Cliff Freilich. I'm the executive director of Cinema St. Louis and we are in our fifth edition of golden anniversaries we're dealing with the films of 1972 this year the film uh, under discussion tonight is buck and the preacher and i am delighted to be joined by gerald early uh dr early i'm sure is familiar to many of you he is uh, a longtime teacher at Washington University. Let me give you his actual proper credits. He's the Merle Kling Professor of Modern Letters. Uh, he is Professor of English and of American and African American Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also the editor of The Common Reader, which is a terrific publication that's been going on for, uh, well, he can he clarify. I think it's somewhere on the order of six years. Now. Six years. Six years. Right on target. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, it's a terrific publication that you can find online. They also do uh, a print publication annually. I think they're continuing that tradition. Are you still? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it is paid, but you can sneak in and get a little bit of a, a taste to see whether or not you'd like to subscribe. And it's very much well worth it. So please uh, consider doing that. He is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has a huge number of other credits, but I think that will suffice. I want to make one recommendation before I introduce, uh, introduce and turn things over to him to talk about the film and Poitier, uh, initially. And that is, uh, speaking of the common reader, he wrote a very nice piece in the common reader shortly after Poitier's death. That is a remembrance of him, uh, from the point of view, a very personal rem remembrance of his first experiences as a kid encountering Poitier on the screen. Uh, but also offers wonderful context. So please look that up on the Common Reader. Um, you'll find it at commonreader.wustl, W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U. And the name of the piece is The Flame and the Arrow, which you can just search for Poitier. All right, I'm going to disappear for a while and then rejoin Gerald afterwards, after he has his uh, say about the film. And then I want to encourage those of you who are watching to offer your own comments and questions through the chat function and i will relay those uh so please uh you're part of this conversation i hope you join later on all right gerald early thank you thank you cliff um good evening everyone i'm very happy to be here and to have an opportunity to talk to you a bit about um sydney portier and the film buck and the preacher now buck and the preacher was the first film that portier directed I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But it was not the first Western in which he appeared. He appeared in a Western in 1966 called Duel at Diablo. And that film was directed by Ralph Nelson, who also directed Portier in his uh, Academy Award-winning performance film, Lilies of the Field in 1963. Portier was not the top 
build star of Duel at Diablo. It was Jim Garner, who had been, uh, as many of you know, a cow- had played a cowboy gambler in the television series Maverick, which made him famous. And then he transferred over into uh, feature films. Poitier was the, um, was the second lead in the film. It also starred B.B. Anderson as well as Dennis Weaver. The film featured Poitier as a gambler and also as a, an army sergeant, an ex-army sergeant. Um, and it takes place uh, sometime after the Civil War and it involves uh, Native Americans, Apaches, which is pretty common in many Westerns to talk about Apaches. Uh, and um, Poitier plays a heroic figure in this film, although his character is not as important as Jim Garner's character. Uh, he's the main character and he, his character is more complex. He's driven by revenge, a common theme in Westerns. Uh, because his wife, who was Indian, was 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 murdered, and he wants to have revenge against the person who did this, uh, and so forth. Portier doesn't come with anywhere near that kind of his character does not come with anywhere near that kind of baggage in the film. But he is a heroic character, and Portier played the role because he wanted very much to do a western, because blacks so rarely appeared in westerns, and he wanted to play a heroic character in a western. And um, so this film, Duel at Diablo, fit the bill for him in that regard of playing that kind of character. Um, and it was a kind of, in some ways, an improbable sort of character. But nonetheless, it was effective. And certainly for uh, kids such as myself, I was a teenager at the time the film came out. You know, I enjoyed the film uh, and uh, was, was very entertained by it and very entertained by Poitier's character. His character is not racial in the film. By that, I mean that his character in that film, nothing ever came up about his being black. That was not an issue in the film. The race element in the film is uh, with Native Americans and whites, and particularly um, B.B. Anderson's character, who is a white woman who is kidnapped by Apaches. She is has uh, a baby by an Apache warrior and has this difficulty when she gets back among whites to be accepted by whites because she had been kidnapped by the Indians and had her baby by um, a Native American man. So that's really the, 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 the conflict in the movie is about um, whites and uh, Native Americans and really has nothing to do with, with blacks. Poitier said at the time he was quite pleased with that. Um, he said he was tired of, uh, as he put it, the uh, more of that. He didn't want to do any more of that crap about race. That was old hat with him always playing this uh, put upon black character, this challenged black character. And he felt that in some ways, audiences wanted to see him in roles that weren't necessarily all about his race. The character that he played in that film, uh, it was in the book on which the film is based called Apache Uprising. And that character was white in the book and it was made into a black character for, uh, specifically for Poitier. Poitier made that film at the time when he was really approaching, really at his zenith um, as uh, an American star, as a box office attraction. Once he won the Academy Award for Lilies of the Field, he was, um, he had really propelled himself into being a major star in the United States and and a major uh, crossover figure in the United States. He, um, his films uh, 
of course, appeal to black people, but they had crossover appeal and his films also appealed to whites. Now, Poitier for Buck and the Preacher, um, this is six years later. And things have changed a lot for Poitier from 1966, Duel at Diablo, to 1972 and Buck and the Preacher. His career has taken a downturn. It kind of reached, you might say, its high point with um, In the Heat of the Night, 67, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. After that, there were some films that were not very good. There were some sequels to um, In the Heat of the Night, uh, which were just sort of mediocre. There was a film called The Lost Man in which Poitier is trying to play a more um, militant kind of character because Black Power has now come in and Black Power has become the dominant political temperament among Black people after in the late 1960s. And so he, he wants to have a film that reflects that and so forth. Uh, but these films were generally not very successful for Poitier. So he had been thinking about doing this Western. He and Harry Belafonte, Belafonte, who is in the film with Poitier, came up with the project of Buck and the Preacher. And Poitier very much wanted to do this. Now, in 1972, we have a period in American films called black exploitation films. The black exploitation films were um, very popular with black urban audiences. I can remember going to see my share of them when I was in college. Films like Shab. Uh, Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Superfly, um, Foxy Brown, Coffee, which were films that featured Pam Greer, who was the leading Black woman star of the period. Uh, Fred Williamson was a big star of this period. He was in films like Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem. These were all very popular films with Black audiences. And all of these films dealt with the inner city. They were extremely urban. They dealt with the inner city. Uh, they were usually films that were dealing with Black people fighting against, there might have been some Black people who were uh, involved in crime or something like that, but they were fighting against uh, white people who were doing terrible things to Black people and doing terrible things in the ghetto. And these mostly, and most of these films, Black men uh, were prevailing against them and winning and they were you know, getting the woman at the end and all this sort of stuff. And they were super studs and they can beat up guys and, uh, and they got women and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, they were fantasy movies. Of course, they were revenge fantasy movies. So black audiences went to see them to see the black, per, black people win over white people. And that was extraordinarily appealing to black audiences at the time to, um, see such films. However, black exploitation films were not universally liked by black people. There were black people complained about them because they said they stereotyped black people. They made black people seem as though all they did, all, all of them lived in the ghetto. They were all involved in crime in some sort of way and this sort of thing. So there were black people who complained about these, about black exploitation movies. And uh, so there were some black, so were some black films that came out during the black exploitation era that were in character different than black exploitation movies typically were claudine which starred diane carroll and james earl jones was one of them which was about a black garbage uh, worker marries a woman who has several children and this you know very touching drama about uh, a black you know this black family uh there 
was a film by Aussie Dave, the Aussie Davis director called Black Girl about an adolescent Black girl growing up and her problems with her family and her surroundings. Uh, there was Sounder, which stars Cecily Tyson. And um, that was a film that was based on a children's book and um, did very well among Black audiences. It was considered to be really the kind of anti-Black exploitation movie um, when it came out about this Black family struggling in the South. And Buck and the Preacher was also among these films because of, first of all, first and foremost, because it was a Western. Um, and that was very rare during the Blacks. There were very few Westerns, Black Westerns that were made during the Black exploitation period. This, this was click on, without a question, um, the most noted one and the best made one of the films that were, uh, of the films that came out during this era that were Westerns. The film was also meant to be, have a real strong Black consciousness to it. Um, it was a Western that was made from the point of view of Black people. So this is where, this is why the point about Sidney Poitier directing the film is very important. He was not originally the director of the film. The director of the film was a, uh, was a man by the name of Joseph Sargent, who was a perfectly competent white director. But after a few days of shooting, Poitier and Belafonte fired him. Um, they fired him because he didn't have their vision of what they wanted with the film. And uh, so at that point, Poitier started to direct the film because they had been having trouble with shooting the film anyway. There was problems with uh, paying, paying people, problems with the extras. There was problems with a bunch of stuff as, you know, probably as typical with most films. And so Poitier wanted to keep the film on schedule. So he started directing. And Belafonte, you know, convinced the producers uh, and the studio that um, after Poitier had been doing it for uh, a week or so, oh, you know, the rushes look great and everything, you know, and just let, you know, Poitier, everything's going fine. So just let Poitier just keep directing the film. So they were also afraid that Poitier at that point stopped directing the film. The film wouldn't be made, that they wouldn't send in a new director. They would just can the project. So they were able to continue to make the film with Poitier directing. Poitier had never directed a film before. Um, he knew some things about directing, about camera angles and the like, but he was, you know, this was something that was very new to him. But he would go on from this to direct um, several more films. And uh, some of them would become quite popular with Black audiences. Also during the Black exploitation period, they were comedies. Uh, Uptown, Saturday Night, um, Let's Do It Again. There were three of them all together. And uh, two of them starred Bill Cosby along with Poitier. And so it was um, these films that were very, very popular with Black audiences that he made these comedies. And, uh, but Buck and the Preacher was also quite popular with Black audiences. When I saw Buck and the Preacher, I saw it when it first came out in 1972, when it was released. I saw it with some relatives, most people in the theater when I saw it were black and they had come to see the film because Belafonte and Poitier were in it. And for, you know, that time and that generation and those folks, Belafonte and Poitier was, you know, as good as you were going to get. I mean, they were the major black, you know, male stars. And so to see them together in a movie was something that attracted a lot of black people to come see it. And the fact that it was a Western, which was something different. Poitier was, you know, concerned about how the film would be received. 
Black people received the film very well when I saw it. Uh, the, the audience at the end, the Black people in the theater at the end, they clapped. I mean, they got, they cheered. They, you know, they, they thought this movie was terrific. And they liked the very pointed racial nature of the film. Um, that the film was about, that the film showed white people basically in a bad light and white people being terrifically racist and violent. And black people were saying, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and these black people trying to make a life for themselves by going west out of the south after the Civil War. This is a true story. Um, you can read about Black people doing this and trying to find their own townships and their own places going out into the Midwest and out further west. In a book by a Black historian called Nell Painter, her book is called The Exodusters. And that's, that's what these people were called. These Black people were living, they called Exodusters. And um, so Poitier was essentially making a Western about these people. And so, you know, you saw these Black people as these kind of pioneers. It's like a Black wagon train. And, you know, these Black people were going out to find a place for themselves in America. So it was like, you know, they were Americans too, just like the white people went on wagon trains and went out West. There were Black people who were doing the same thing. And it's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, how they persevered against uh, incredible um, bad fortune and um, uh, things working against them and so forth. The film also presented Native Americans in a very positive light. Native Americans in the film wound up being supporters of the Black people in the film and helping the Black people in the film against the white people. So it was, you know, the people of color together against the white people in the film. And, you know, they wound up triumphant in the end, uh, the people of color. And that, that aspect of the film was a big hit with Black people. And black people liked that. I mean, they, they liked that uh, thing about the people are ultimately triumphing and, and Black people and Indians being together and, and in the film. Now, the relationship between Black people and Native Americans goes back a long way and it's quite complex. There were Black people who were, had joined Native American tribes, part of them in some way, had escaped slavery, had joined uh, Native American tribes and the like. Uh, there were also have been black people who have been enslaved by Native Americans because Native Americans met several Native American tribes had slavery. Several Native American tribes fought with the Confederacy um, during the war. So the whole relationship was quite complex. When black people after the war were in the military, you for those of you who might know this, after the Civil War, uh, four units were created in the military for Black people, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments. These were all Black units that were permanently created as a result of the Civil War. And those soldiers, um, those ones of the 24th, some of you may have heard of, they became known as Buffalo Soldiers, went west. And basically, they were part of the Indian Wars. And they, were, they fought against Native Americans out west. Uh, as I said, this is a very complicated story. That's mentioned in this film um, that the um, the uh, Native American that uh, Sidney Poitier is his character is dealing with uh, mentions that to Sidney Poitier that you know black people have come out here and they've killed Native Americans which they did as part of the um, as part of the Indian Wars in the West and his character in the film for those of you who saw will remember that Sidney Poitier's character had been uh, a black soldier 
But as he tells the, um, the um, Native American that he's talking to, that he's not a soldier, that he's not a soldier anymore. So this stuff gets mentioned and this kind of um, sort of historical and racial density that's in the film was very appealing to black people when it came out. It was just, it was enormously appealing. But on the whole, the film was not terrifically successful financially. It just, it kind of just barely broke even. But it did well with black audiences. Black audiences really, um, really, really liked the film. Now, you know, um, you wouldn't say that this film is a terrifically innovative Western, not in the way that you might talk about Anthony Mann Westerns with James Stewart or Sergio Leone Westerns with Clint Eastwood or um, Sam Peckinpah's Westerns, um, Ride the High Country or something like that. It's, it's, it's not on that level of being innovative in the way those, those kind of Westerns were. Um, but it was, it, it was something that was fresh and different insofar as the racial take that it, that it had and having these, uh, black, two black people in the film as heroes, um, Poitier and Belafonte. People have criticized the film, um, because, uh, they thought that one, it's a very conventional Western in many ways. Um, the, um. The, the good guys wind up winning. They aren't, you know, particularly complicated characters. You know, you don't get any anti-heroes here or anything like that. The heroes are the heroes and, and, and so forth. And, uh, it's, 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 um, you know, the, there's a lack of complexity with the characters and it even has a kind of black exploitation sort of ending when Poitier and Belafonte wind up, you know, killing all the bad white guys that are coming after. That's definitely a page taken out of a black exploitation movie. That is definitely a, a revenge fantasy. You know, the, the bad white guys who have been attacking the um, black people uh, who have been traveling out west all get killed in the film, which is definitely a black exploitation ending. Very pleasing to black audiences, but, you know, very unrealistic. And uh, Poitier and Belafonte's character even rob a bank in, in, in the film and so forth. All of this is, you know, pretty unrealistic, but it's very satisfying to, to black audiences who saw the film and, uh, enjoyed the film very much. I would say that people, uh, who saw the film, black people who saw the film, um, had a feeling, uh, kind of saw the film in some of the same ways that they saw Pate Corvo's uh, film, which came out around the same time called Burn, which starred Marlon Brando. Uh, I also saw that with mostly black people in the audience and their response to that film was very similar to their response to Bucking the Preacher. People also criticized the film because they thought Ruby D was underutilized, that women in the film generally uh, were given kind of short shrift and, and certainly Ruby D was kind of underutilized in the film. There's no question about it. The film was very much for Belafonte and Poitier. Uh, some also criticized the film because they thought that Poitier's uh, performance was restrained. And some people have said it was kind of restrained, they felt, because he had the double duty of also being director and he had the tension of having to deal with being the director as well as being, as well as starring in the film. And that's, you know, I've never made a film, never starred in a film, but I assume that doing both of those things together 
is enough to stress you out. And um, he also, Poitier also oversaw the editing of the film after the, after the um, principal photography, after the shooting was completed. So he put in very, very long days. It was said that he put in 18 hour days and didn't sleep very much during the making of the film. And, um, you know, I, I can certainly believe that that is true. So at this point, I hope I've said enough as kind of, um, background introduction about the film a little bit on the, so that we have a little bit of a basis to have a discussion. So, um, one of the things that I was really struck by, and you referenced this very prominently in your intro was the sort of complex relationship between the native Americans and the blacks in the film. And it's obviously they have the solidarity on some levels, but right. uh, it's not complete. And it's right. actually a uh, pretty complicated issue right. uh, with regard to the native Americans attitudes toward the blacks in particular and their unwillingness initially, <laughs> they're yeah. not going to fight on your behalf. Right. They do, they do eventually. Right. They do, they do. But they wait very dramatically during that long gunfight at the conclusion in which you see, you said they sort of unrealistically managed to wipe out <laughs> the overwhelming eyes <laughs> of all these people who are tagging them. Uh, and they are helped modestly. Yes, modestly. (laughs) By the Native Americans who, uh, they they sort of give them almost like a thumbs up, say, yeah, we got you. you. (laughs) But I did, I really found uh, that aspect of the the film uh, quite fascinating because you don't typically see that kind of nuanced presentation. (laughs) During this period of American filmmaking, obviously, there was uh, sort of a revisionist aspect to all Westerns. And we did see a, a, a different sort of presentation of native americans things like a uh, little big man and, and right, other yes. films but i'm just curious i i, I again found that a, a really entrancing part mm. of the film it's not central to it right but it's pretty uh it's pretty important I, i'm just curious as to whether or not you had any further thoughts that you might want to share on that front i just think it was uh as i said important when they were making the film i think it was very important to portier and belafonte that they were going to give a black person's view of the West. And I think for them giving a black person's view of the West meant seeing Native Americans in a different light. And I also think it was important for them, especially at this particular time period in the early 1970s, when still black power is a thing. And, 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 and it resonates a lot with black people to show this kind of solidarity. I mean, this is kind of like this is not a kind of third world solidarity here where we have this hope between these, these, these oppressed people. And, you know, remembering the time and everything, I think that's why that aspect of the film works so well with at least minority audiences, that it had this kind of resonance about third world solidarity. And, um, and very much, I think audiences liked the idea that this was a film, this was a Western being told from a, from black, from a black person's perspective. Of course, one aspect of uh, the film doesn't improve on traditional approaches to Americans in the sense that Native Americans aren't playing Native Americans. It's right. primarily uh, Hispanics, <laughs> Latinx, and then uh, Belafonte's wife at the time. One thing that, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the interaction between Belafonte and Poitier, who obviously were uh, colleagues and friends, and they made the film very much together and uh, helped enable the project. Can you just talk a little bit about 
their uh, sort of role in the, the sort of black ecosystem at the time, they were a little probably past the height of their powers with regard to stardom uh, in both cases, although just a little past, not much. <laughs> sure. uh, they were really uh, obviously names to conjure with. Sure. They were two big stars and Belafonte had not appeared in as many movies as Portier had. Belafonte was always going around claiming that all the, most of the parts that Portier was offered had been offered to him first and he turned them down. <laughs> he always said that. Uh, that's highly disputed by Poitier. <laughs> the parts were offered to Belafonte first. But Belafonte had been in some important films. But then again, on the other hand, Belafonte had a music career. So he wasn't as dependent on, you know, acting as Poitier was because Poitier didn't have, you know, the side thing of being a, uh, a singer. And um, the two men were kind of rivals in a way. They were friends and rivals. They had, in fact, had a falling out and they hadn't spoken to each other for two years before Bucking the Preacher was made. They were, they had a falling out at Martin Luther King's funeral. I can't remember what exactly it was, but they had a falling out. And Poitier, they both got so mad, yeah, I'm never going to talk to him again. And, 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 and Poitier said later about it. He said, you know, we're two West Indian guys and we, you know, when we get mad, man, we really, we really stay mad. But Belafonte finally broke the ice and called him up and, you know, they started joking and laughing. And that's when Belafonte pitched this project was part of, you know, they're coming back together, you know, about, oh yeah, I got this project about black Western, you know, called Bucking the Preacher. What do you think? And, um, so that's what got them back together again. But they had known each other and had been friends uh, since back in the 50s. And, um, but they had also been, you know, as I said, they had been rivals because, you know, Belafonte had been in Carmen Jones. He had been in a, in a nice film noir called Odds Against Tomorrow, which is, if people haven't seen it, they should see it because it's a really, it's a good film noir. I think it was directed by Robert Wise, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, I could be mistaken, but I think it was. And, you know, he had been in some, but he had never been consistently in films. You know, during this time when he was in these, you know, few films, Poitier was in a lot more. He was, he was working, he was working so much more consistently. And, um, you know, they, um, they were good friends and knew each other. And they were both great admirers of Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson is this kind of like giant. For them, Paul Robeson was like this giant figure. I mean, Paul Robeson was, was the dude, you know, I mean, Paul Robeson was the guy who was the actor. He was the singer and Robeson was also the guy who spoke up on behalf of black people and was willing to sacrifice his career to speak up for black people and their rights. So they felt it was very important to be on Robeson's good side, to have Robeson respect them and things like that. And so they were uh, very good friends with Robeson and talked to Robeson all the time. What's interesting is that Belafonte did feel at times that some of the roles that Poitier took, he should not have taken, that he thought some of the roles were not good roles. And, you know, he's probably right about that, that some of the roles probably were not good roles, but Poitier, like any actor, was not is not totally in control of 
of the, all, all the stuff that you make. And, you know, sometimes you make one, you have to make this thing in order to make this other thing that you really want to make. You got to make this piece of crap over here, but make this thing that you really want to make. So he wasn't in complete control of his career in that regard of just being able to say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I could just totally pick projects. So it was, um, it was, their friendship was, was legendary. I would hope that someday somebody would write a book just about their friendship because their friendship was important. And they, as you said, they were still, they were on the other, you know, they were, they weren't at their peak anymore, but they were still names. Uh, it, it's interesting that it was Edward Belafonte who, uh, the project originated with, because you reference the fact that Poitier's character in this film is a little bland. Uh, he, he doesn't have the kind of colorful nature that the preacher does. Right. And, uh, I, I, if I were the director, I think I might've been tempted to cast myself <laughs> in that role. And it would have also been a, a sort of turning things a little bit on their head for what mm -hmm. we would have expected from Poitier, give him an opportunity to actually play a type that we've not really seen mm -hmm. him in. Uh, and it would have been fascinating. If yeah. we had seen a reversal of those two, but knowing that, uh, uh, <laughs> Belavante actually brought the project to him, he no doubt had that <laughs> in mind. Yeah, I so. Probably so. I mean, probably, you know, he said, oh yeah, you're going to be Buck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Any actor, you know, the two roles, sure. Any actor would have to be a preacher than Buck. <laughs> oh, you didn't have to wear those, uh, terrible teeth. Uh, <laughs> I they managed to uh, discolor those, uh, but uh, I'm sure that must not have been pleasant. Uh, that, that character does have a little bit of complexity. You referenced in your intro that it's not exactly, uh, again, sort of a lack of nuance on some levels uh, to, to these characters. But uh, the preacher certainly has some right. of that. He ends up reverting. <laughs> to, right. You're sort of straight ahead right. character. You know, he's tempted, but he right. doesn't actually take the bait. You know, he's going to turn in, uh, Buck, uh, for the reward and things of that nature, of course, which he would have never received. Right. Uh, that was also made clear. And perhaps he realized that on some levels, but nonetheless, we, we see a, a glimmer, I think of the complexity that we could have potentially, right. uh, seen more fully realized in that particular character. I, I would agree with that, you know, that that character had potential to be a really complex character. I mean, that character had potential to be like a long John Silver character in, in Treasure Island that, you know, you had this character that really, you know, you want to hate, but then he'll do something that, you know, he's, oh, well, you know, he's, he, and you admire and hate the person at the same time. But th in this case, he winds up, as you say, completely converting and just being, you know, you're, you know, by the time they have the shoot at the end, he's just your, 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 your grade A Western hero. You know? And, uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's too bad, but I do think in the beginning of the film for the first part of the film, his character did show some complexity and had some real possibility to, um, be a more nuanced character than the character in the end turned out to be. It, you also reference the fact that uh, Ruby D's character is given short shrift. In fact, she's introduced sort of early on, and then she just disappears for a long stretch of the film until they finally loop back to her, and then she right. sort of pulled back into the plot almost in a peripheral way. I mean, she yeah. she's there, but not really taking any sort of real active role beyond just sort of like accompanying. Right. Uh, and yet, I think it is a... a 
could see at least some small progress in the sense that Whitey was oftentimes criticized. Well, I don't know if he was criticized, but the films were criticized for the fact that he's never given an opportunity to be romantic lead. Right. He doesn't have a relationship typically in most of these films. At least here we do see, again, mm-hmm. not very well developed. <laughs> right. But we do see a relationship that seems to be very important and uh, is a little bit more developed uh, than what we've seen in his past. This is true that, you know, Ruby D does provide that, that dimension. She had, it's very interesting that she played his wife as well in um, uh, Raisin in the Sun. And she also plays his wife in Edge of the City. So she had, she's gotten pretty used to play Sidney Poitier's wife <laughs> in, uh, in movies. But the, on the whole, women in the film were kind of given short shrift. And I'm, I'm certain that if, you know, if, if, we, if it were remade today or something, women would be given a, a much more prominent role in the movie than, um, you know, I mean, Ruby D was basically the kind of long suffering wife. And, you know, she's, and, um, you know, uh, she deserved better than that. The one scene she had was very effective, but, you know, she deserved better than that. I mean, she's, she's such a good actress and she should be playing, should have a bigger role. I'm curious, I know you're a uh, massive uh, a jazz fan and expert, uh, and the score for this film was done by Benny Carter. And I, I'm just curious what your reaction was to the score, because I had some a little bit of an issue at times with it. I don't know. They're trying to get a kind of um, authenticity of some sort with uh, the music here. And uh, I, I felt it was a little limiting. Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry were, were listed as performers, but they never sang anything. And that was kind of disappointing too. If they were going to do that, they really wanted to have some kind of black folk music that kind of evoked the period or something. I thought they might've had them singing or something in it. I mean, that could have, you know, I think given the, the film a little bit more, more, uh, texture. I was surprised with Benny Carter being doing the, the, the score that the score wasn't richer in some way that the, that the, the score wasn't, it wasn't more with the score than what was, than what you got. I wanted to talk a little, you, you again referenced the fact that this film was part of, it, it wasn't part of, but it was running in parallel with the black exploitation films, which arguably started like the year before, maybe two years right. before that. Uh, we featured Shaft last year. <laughs> Previous uh, year, we uh, featured Watermelon Man. Mm-hmm. There, there were any number of precursors that sure. uh, sort of led the way Right. Uh, uh, to black exploitation. Uh, and then of course, sweet, sweet backs, uh, right. uh, last year as well. This was a far more traditional approach. Uh, right. Uh, uh, but you reference the fact that a lot of black people also had, you know, they very well embraced. They had issues, uh, yeah. with the portrayal of black, uh, black men in particular, well, women too. Uh, in the films, I'm curious because it seems to me there's a little bit of a through line in the sense that in your article, uh, in the common reader, you mm-hmm. reference the fact that Pori and Betts, which Belafonte turned down, right? Poitier was sort of pressed into service right. <laughs> into doing, yeah. uh, 
was also criticized for many of the same sort of stereotypes being right. used, et cetera. Uh, it's certainly a, a black exploitation film, but <laughs> by the same token, the same kind of criticisms apply right. there. I was just curious whether or not that occurred to you when you were doing your piece is to, uh, that, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Well, yeah, in, in, in some ways that's really true. I think black people are very sensitive about stereotypes of themselves and, and it's complicated because they've been stereotyped in, in some different ways. And also because in some ways they've been stereotyped and they have in some ways embraced some of the stereotypes or try to turn the stereotypes on their heads or something like that. Black people are highly stigmatized people. And I think any stigmatized group of people, they're very sensitive about stereotypes. So th that's why I think the complaint about stereotypes has been very consistent with black people for just decades and decades and decades, and decades. I mean, you'll find black people who will complain about rap music because they feel as though rap music uh, stereotypes them and, and, and things like that. So, you know, black people are just very, very sensitive about, about these things. And they're not, they're not wrong about, you know, the stereotypes being there. They, whether they are always explicitly stereotypes or whether people are trying to do something else with them is, is another question. But I do think that um, people do get concerned about that. And it did happen with the black exploitation era. Of course, with Porgy and Bess, it was a stereotype about, you know, poor black people and the language that was used in Porgy and Bess, this and that. And then, of course, it did help the fact that Porgy and Bess was, um, uh, the novel was written by a white, the opera was written by two white. So that did help that, you know, I mean, it might have gone down better with people if Duke Ellington had written it or something like that. But, you know, the Gershwin brothers wrote it and the boys Hayward wrote the novel and everything. And so, you know, that made people nervous. But, you know, these black exploitation films also had, you know, problems. Many of them were not made by, you know, were not directed by black people. You know, they were directed by whites. And, you know, they did. And, you know, aspects of black life, black urban life, black ghetto life, whatever you want to call it in the film for some people just just seem like stereotypes and it seemed as though the films weren't nuanced and the films weren't looking at black people's lives in a way that was really serious but on the other hand that's what made the films kind of appealing because there was a kind of realism in the films but the films were really fantasy films <laughs> they were really like you know the, the ending that you got with buck and the preacher you got with a lot of life exploitation films where you know the bad black guy shoots all these bad white people and, you know and all this sort of stuff and so they, they were fantasy I, I guess it was cathartic for black audiences to have that and uh and and so you can't and, and so you can't dismiss that the the cathartic nature of it and how important it was for that audience how hungry the audience was to see black people on the screen doing something that they could cheer you know they black audience i remember it very well having seen lived through that era and seen many of these films when they first came out how hungry black audiences were for it i mean they cheered. I mean, people cheered at the end of these movies. I mean, they just, yeah, right off. Just, yeah, I mean, people were, they, they, they thoroughly enjoyed the films. Uh, we have a question. Betty Ann, uh, was Buck inspirational in any way to the recent spate of modern Black Westerns, such as Posse? And 
most recently, The Harder They Fall. I don't know if you've seen The Harder They Fall on Netflix. No, I haven't seen that. I've seen Posse. And yeah, I would say so. I would say definitely. But, you know, uh, there were other, I think, influences as well. I think with Posse, as I recall, I think that was, to me, that seemed like partly a tribute to Woody, the actor Woody Strode. And um, Woody Strode was also in a very important Western, a star the a very important Western called um, Sergeant Rutledge, which I think was directed by John Ford, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct, yeah. And um, thank you. And, and Woody Strode was a kind of a, a very important Black movie star. He wasn't as big as Sidney Poitier or Belafonte, but he was certainly a, an important Black star during his time. And so I think that that was partly a tribute to, um, to uh, Woody Strode as well, who's featured in that film. But yeah, Buck and the Preacher was definitely inspired that. I would even say that the, um, the remake of The Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington was probably also kind of inspired by Buck and the Preacher a little bit too, you know. All right, I'd like to, uh, we're nearing the finish line here, and I wanted to end a little bit by talking, uh, having you talk <laughs> about Poitier's importance as a iconic actor, and particularly as a Black actor who throws a really major shadow over film history. I wanted to make a recommendation, by the way, uh, there's a terrific piece by uh, Wesley Morris in the New York Times that was published uh, at the time of Poitier's death called Sidney Poitier was the star we desperately needed him to be that I, I would encourage people to, to read. But I'd just like to hear your thoughts about, yeah, I know in your personal life, he was very important, but talk a little bit about why uh, we need to pay some serious attention to uh, his impact. Well, Poitier came along at a time when Hollywood was slowly beginning to have some, tried to give black people some serious dramatic roles. And, you know, Poitier came along and he was able to play these roles. He had a kind of versatility, but the important thing about him was that he had a, a great ability to be a crossover actor. That is to say that I think for any black actor to succeed at the time that he was coming along with his career, you had to be an actor who had some kind of an appeal to whites. It couldn't just be that you appealed to black people. You had to have some kind of an appeal to whites. And I think Poitier's character, his personality, his mannerisms, all of that, I think had a certain kind of appeal, crossover appeal to whites. He was the first black actor to consistently get dramatic roles. He was the first black actor to really become a, a box office presence. Um, he was the first black actor to really, I think, be considered a peer in Hollywood uh, at a certain point in his career. And all of those things were very path breaking. And he also introduced certain kind of subject matter in films. Uh, showing black people in a way that they hadn't been shown before. What was important about his characters was that he, in most instances, he was trying to show black people as fully human, as, as having dignity, as having pride. And those things were extremely important to black people. Even if they didn't always like the film, it was important the kind of character that he was playing and 
the presence that he had on the screen. So there's, there's no way you could overestimate his importance, I think, in American cinema. And last, why don't you give what you think are the essential roles, the films that people should absolutely seek out if they want to get a clear sense of who Poitier was as an actor. And for that matter, if you want to recommend any of the films that he directed, his directorial career, in my estimation, is not anywhere near the level of his acting well, this is, this is true. Uh, I would agree that, uh, you know, with that, the, um, Blackboard Jungle is a film that I think that if you've not seen it, you should see it. I think the character he plays in there, Miller, he just does a terrific job. I mean, he's just charismatic in that film. I think he and Glenn Ford really carry that film. Um, so I would certainly recommend that film. I would recommend In the Heat of the Night when he plays this black Philadelphia cop in Mississippi with this kind of attitude. I think that that was a film where he played what I think it was a very memorable performance in that film, A Raisin in the Sun, which is of course the most famous play written by a black person, Lorraine Hansberry. I think that that was a very important performance um, and a very important performance with him in an all black movie. Um, and he didn't make a lot of those. And, but that was clearly the most important all black movie that he was to make. Those are three I can think of right off the top of my head that I think are really, really important performances that he gave that people should see. Lilies of the Field is a film that I also recommend because there is no other film where he is as winning a personality as, 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 as glowingly charismatic, pleasing. There's no white person on earth who, who wouldn't love him after seeing him in Lilies of the Field. I mean, he was, it's just a marvelous performance in that regard. It's just, he's just so in, incredibly likable in that film. So, you know, it's quite, quite funny. It's quite funny yeah. uh, during that yeah. film as well. Obviously, he does actually have sort of a subspecialty of comedy later in his career as a director. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> but that's and, not, comedy is not what you associate Poitier with. <laughs> no, it, it's not what you associate Poitier with. And, you know, Buck and the Preachers, it's a perfect example of that because he basically was the straight man to Harry Belafonte. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Gerald, as yeah. always. Uh, uh, very uh, much appreciate your time and the insight that you've given us. Uh, we'll uh, make certain to uh, lure you back for a future golden anniversaries presentation. You can be, you can be certain we'll be knocking on your door. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.